0: Hello, and welcome to the Bobby Yaga Project. The Baba Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. lovingly researched and recorded by your hosts, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on
1: indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Welcome to this week's episode of the Babiaga Project. Today we are talking about courtship rituals. So, how people found a partner in the past. This was back before the days of Tinder or Bumble or, I don't know, eHarmony. <laughs> match.com. Yeah, okay, Cupid. How you find Bay. Yes, exactly. Before. You know, you, you couldn't slide into someone's DMs. You'd tend to just <laughs> slide up to them at a bar and hope for the best, I guess. But we're going further back than that. Yeah, way to the, way, 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 way super dee do back. Yeah. To the Middle Ages, because, I mean, let's be real, courtship for the most part in, you know, the classical world was like, well, your father spoke to my father, and they have come <laughs> to an agreement about when we are to be wed. But once we start getting into the Middle Ages, by and large, um, especially throughout a lot of Europe, we're starting to see more choice, basically, in terms of your, you know, marriage partner. Essentially, uh, mostly because, as we talked about before, in Europe generally, and especially in the Western areas of Europe, the marriage age climbs higher and higher as people start to move away from intergenerational households where a bride would move into her groom's family home and starts moving into, you know, kind of a proto-nuclear family where a husband and wife set up their own home after their marriage. Which means that, you know, there's a, you're, you're a lot older, A, when mm-hmm. you're getting married. You're not 12, so you know, <laughs> probably have some of your own ideas and your own ability to uh, go after those ideas. And it's also the fact that since the two of you were going to be not just romantic partners, because let's be real, romance was like nice, but definitely not the main purpose of marriage. You were basically looking for someone who, if you were wealthy, was going to secure alliances and that kind of thing. Um, but if you were poorer, right, you are some, like, you're picking somebody who is going to run your household with you, who is going to yeah. either run a farm with you or who is going to run the. Family business with you. So, if you're the blacksmith, right, like you need someone who you are going to be in close quarters with and working with all day, every day, basically. So, you, you really got to be able to get along and work together. And I think that's kind of the first thing I want to establish is that when we're talking about these courtship rituals today in the main episode, I am talking about, you know, peasants, urban commoners, maybe up to the, you know, Trades, people, merchants, etc. There was not a lot of choice if you were royalty, aristocracy, nobility, because there was just way too much at stake. They're like, no, you can't choose who you're going to marry. Uh, I already made a betrothal for you when you were about six months old because we really need Spain to, like, be on our (laughs) side in future wars. So, sorry, you have to marry this princess instead of that one. Yeah, you were part of our peace treaty with France. Yeah, exactly. You were the bargaining chip. Whereas, you know, when the, uh, the... Basically, the lower down you are on the social totem pole, basically... The more freedom
0: of choice you have.
1: Yeah. Just because there's a lot less at stake. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to go into that. So basically, we're going to treat this as a, my half of this episode is the medieval dating show, where we go through and you pretend to be a contestant, and we'll tell you how you have to pick your, (laughs) your love. And my half is, why were things bad
0: in colonialism?
1: Yeah, just all the trigger warnings for that half of the episode. Yeah,
0: if you uh we'll put the I'll we'll put the timestamp for the if you don't want to hear about awful stuff. Yeah, in we'll the also Yeah. Audio description.
1: We'll also give you a warning in the episode itself. Yeah. To be like, It's time to go now, the game show part is over. Yeah. So let's start out. You're in your medieval village or town and you are an eligible bachelor or bachelorette and you're out there thinking, wow, sure would be nice to find a partner, settle down, have someone to help me run the farm. So first things first, you need to pick out people who are roughly the same social status as you, right? So like if you're a peasant woman, you're not going to be marrying a knight, right? You need to you, you need to manage your expectations here, right? However, if you can find someone who's like a little higher status than you, so much the better. We actually have a lot of records especially from the high and late middle ages, you know, once people start writing things down a bit more, <laughs> of people trying to marry up the social ladder essentially. Right. So we see this with both men and women. Typically, when we're looking at women, it'll be a situation where, okay, maybe you're the village blacksmith. But you're able to scrape together, like, enough money that your daughter is able to marry, like, a silversmith apprentice or journeyman, right? right? And then she gets married, has a child, and maybe those two scrape together enough money and marry their daughter off to the son of a goldsmith and like obviously that's just it's an example but like that's the kind of social climbing you would see through generations one
0: step up every
1: time yes exactly um but we also see this with men towards women because a lot of the time if you were say an apprentice of a master craftsman right then you know you'd maybe look and say huh he has a daughter who is roughly <laughs> my age. It would behoove me to maybe get on her good side because she already knows how to do stuff in the in the craft shop. Keep it in the family. Right? Keep it all in the family. And then also, when Master Craftsman dies, I am his son-in-law, so yeah. I get to inherit part of, or if he has no sons, maybe all of, if I'm lucky, his workshop. So, you know, there's a lot of of that, of, like, social climbing that way. However, you also have to be careful about this because you need to make sure that you're not, like, related. Like, they have to be in the same social status as you. Right. But they can't be close enough in your circles that you're going to be related to them. Because, like, yes, obviously today there are... You know, you're not going to like marry your immediate family or anything. However, it was a lot more strict in the Middle Ages. Um, The church had a rule that you could not marry a relative, even if you only had a great-great-great-great-great-grandparent in common, which would mean you could not be more closely related than, I believe, seventh cousins. Yeah, it's something like that. Which, for the most part... Um, you know, this really, like, only came into play super often when we are looking at, you know, royalty and aristocracy, because, again, they're the ones keeping enough records Records of their family (laughs) line that you could figure out if you have a great, 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 great grandparent in common. And, you know, kind of the whole point of that is, you know, you... uh, they didn't want all the royal. F- hey, hey,
0: boys! <laughs>
1: minor, minor. So the whole point of that is that they were trying to prevent all of the aristocratic and royal families from just constantly inbreeding. So that was yeah, really who that rule was a for. Great idea. Yeah, looking at you, Habsburgs. <laughs> <laughs> However, in the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the church reduced this to having a great, great grandparent in common. So it became a little a, a little more loosey-goosey, you know? It's like
0: second cousins.
1: Yeah, it's like you can be... Yeah, I guess second cousins, you're allowed now. So Habsburgs. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing was that would have actually been a lot more um, relevant to you know, common people was like other ties that weren't necessarily blood that could prohibit marriage. So, for example, if you are a godparent and a godchild, mm-hmm. your adult godchild cannot marry you because you are seen as being spiritually related. Oh, because right. being a godparent, right, like that essentially made you like a, also close in-laws were a no-no. So like, you know? brother-in-law sister-in-law yeah exactly like if you're if your sister dies you can't just like swoop in and marry her husband they're like no nah, like you're already family you can't do that so once you have determined that you are not related by blood or spiritually or legally but that you are of similar enough social status that you like have a shot you need to figure out if this is a person of ill repute or if they are respectable so, for this one, you're going to have to go off of local reputation. So, if you're looking for a woman, you need to find someone who is honorable, i.e. chaste, i.e. a virgin, preferably. Because, you know, you want to know those kids are yours. Right. And really, that's, that's about what you're looking for, you know? I mean, it's also good if she's, like, generally well-known to not, I don't know, be out here swindling people or anything. But for the most <laughs> part, the big the big question is, is is she out to sleep in with everybody.
0: Or anybody,
1: really. That's that's the problem. That's the question. Whereas for a man, you know, you want to know that he's respected in the community and, like, seen as a trustworthy, decent guy generally. Because, you know, you don't want to be tying yourself for like, to life to a knave, to a coward, to a, a drunkard. drunkard. You know, because then later you might have to turn him into a cuck and then everyone's making fun of you and it's a <laughs> whole time and... People who listen to the bonus episode will get that. <laughs> now, it's step three, time to get to know each other more personally. So now that you've determined that this person is neither a knave, nor a rapscallion, nor <laughs> a woman of ill repute. <laughs> right. You can go and, you know, maybe, maybe strike up some conversation. And at this point, you know, through the Middle Ages and the early modern period, there's more and more freedom for you know, young people to kind of socialize a little bit. So Mm -hmm. maybe this is going to happen at a pub, a tavern, festivals, marketplaces, literally out working in fields, basically any kind of social situation. So, you know, again, it's really important that you're going to be compatible with this person. Like the big emphasis was yeah, you should, like, care about each other. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like people didn't develop feelings and, like, didn't love each other. But I think it was a lot... There was a lot more concern about... Like, it was less concerned about, like, is there, like, passion and romance and fire? And more, like, is this, like, a long-term, steady, sustainable relationship where we can, like, be life partners and work together? Right, Because, uh, again, you're not just signing up to be sexy romance time partners you're signing up to like be co-owners of a farm or business who are both having to work together on stuff yeah exactly so now that you have you know gotten to know each other a little you think wow this is this could this could be the real deal we're pretty compatible i could i could work in the fields next to you for the rest of my life it's time for you to show some interest right So what's the first thing you're going to have to do? Well, first one, I would say, is you're going to have to try a love token. (laughs) Some common ones include brooches or badges, especially little heart-shaped ones. Which are both decorative and held your clothes in place, right? Like if you have your cloak or your whatever. Um, They've actually found, like, dozens of these little badges, like, in the, like... uh, sediment of the river thames from the middle ages like they were a very very common token between lovers both you know before and after marriage like when i'm saying lover i mean as like the person who you love not yeah you know not not like a salacious lover (laughs) (laughs) um it was also pretty common right for a woman to give a man something that she had sewn so you know like her handkerchief or other you know, little little fabric items. Uh, and she might scent it with her favorite perfume and he could, like, tuck it into a pocket or, you know, as you see in, like, movies and stuff, right? Like, the knight ties his lady's <laughs> handkerchief to his arm. And we're going to talk about courtly love in the bonus episode if you want more, more of that sweet, sweet romancing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the other thing is that ordinary people would look at what wealthy people did and then would copy it in miniature. So if you're a wealthy person, you want to give your lover a little, like, like a, a gift. You might do something like fancy shoes and combs and jewelry and little decorative boxes and stuff, right? Yeah. So what poorer people would do, you could buy or make these things in miniature. So you would get, like, a tiny little little pair of shoes (laughs) that are like painted or a tiny purse or a tiny jewelry box and like it it was meant to act more as like like a little charm like just Mm. a little token of affection rather than like a full-sized version because you couldn't afford that (laughs) and they were these would be actually especially um common before things had gotten like serious because Right. They're, they're pretty ambiguous, right? Like, you can still give that gift to someone where you're like, hmm, like, you know, here's here's this tiny pair of shoes I carved you and painted painstakingly. <laughs> and, like, you, you could still get away with being like, just friends, though. Just as friends. <laughs> um, something that was a lot less ambiguous was belts, um, because they were actually seen as a form of marriage token. Ooh. Because they are symboli- they have their symbolism of a circle, mm-hmm. right? So, eternity and knotting the belt for, right. like, you're being tied together. Um, so, their archaeologists have found belt fittings in silver showing two clasped hands and inscriptions such as amor, Aww. as in love. Um, which could have been as marriage gifts or as gifts between, like, courting or loving people. Right. There has also been a love token of a spur, like as in, like for horses, that was found <laughs> near the War of the Roses battle site at Towton, with the inscription, in loyal love, all my heart. Mm-hmm. So That's weird. Yeah, I mean, th- <laughs> k- kind of weird, but also just like kind of kind of cute. And I don't know, I think it's kind of nice because we have this idea that people were like, Ah, like, I have no feelings. I just, yeah, no, I'm just yeah. social climbing and I'm like cold and calculating. And it's like, oh, well, like I went out and got you this heart shaped brooch because <laughs> I <laughs> thought it would be nice. <laughs> and then, of course, the you know, ultimate love token is the ring, which right. were already a part of the betrothal and marriage ceremonies. And the this is like ancient tradition, like, it dates back to like. Uh, Antiquity Mm -hmm. um, that you could wear your ring on your third finger on the left hand because there was believed that there was a direct vein that led directly to the heart in that finger, Mm -hmm. which I mean they all do, but you know (laughs) know what I mean. Anatomy was kind of confusing back then, Um, and the thing is, rings could be made with precious metals and stones, so you know royalty would have. Obviously, much fancier rings, but yeah. because bone is so easy to carve, even people who had basically nothing could have these very elaborate rings if they took the time to like yeah. carve them out. And it was also, you know, this sort of um, public versus private, even within the rings, because it was also quite common, especially amongst the literate classes, basically, right. um, and uh, generally, once a uh, literacy became more my more more widespread, um, would be inscribing little love messages inside the ring. Aww. So that is not just, like, a trend of the last few decades or whatever. That has been going on since, you know, forever, where it would be a little message just be- just between the two of you. <laughs> um, but that was, you know, you that, that's not necessarily, like, you're for sure getting married, right? Like, you could still right. give someone a ring, but, like, that's a lot more serious like that mm-hmm. one, once you have a once you put a ring on it right? <laughs> like at that point it's like okay now this is public like yeah now your relationship people are like expecting like okay so you are engaged like we see that yeah. you two are betrothed affianced <laughs> ready to tie the knot um and then the other thing that you could do aside from love tokens would be Copying these chivalric romance ideas, because obviously, right, like hiring troubadours and having all this, right, like that's reserved for the upper classes. But all these chivalric romances were also being sung and spoken and recited and played out on stage. So, you know, even common people were aware of this. So you might recite poetry or sing love songs to the person you love to show your affection. Aww. And now we're finally there. It's at step five. You have found your person. You're not related to them. They're a reasonable social status with regards to you. You've given them little tiny miniature gifts, and you've sung poetry, and you have a ring. And now this is the last question. Does everybody else approve? <laughs> because, I mean, it's much like today, but with much more weight to it. You know, the parents really got to be on your side, your friends, your family, your neighbors. Like, basically, at that stage, the question is, does your community approve or not? Right. For the most part, by this point, somebody probably would have brought up an issue (laughs) by now. Um, But that would really be kind of the last hurdle to pass before, uh, like, between that and getting married is... Having basically enough friends and family on your side (laughs) that you can move forward with it Mm -hmm. because yeah, you're, you can hypothetically get married. Just, you know, just the two of you can just decide we're going to get married. And it was fully legal in the middle ages to just say, I marry you. I marry you. Done. Now you're married. You didn't even need witnesses. However, it's going to be real tough if you, have made everyone else in the family angry at you because you're marrying someone where they're like, ah, like we disapprove of this person because they did X, Y, Z. Right. So like, basically you got to make sure you have all your ducks in a row. Yeah. If you want, if you want this all to go smoothly and you want everyone to get along and support you. And that's basically what a lot of courtship looked like you know, from the Middle Ages, I would say, well into the early modern period and honestly even into the nineteenth century for in, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like you know, it didn't really change that that much until you start seeing like, you know, more of the nineteen twenties maybe, where young people start having more spaces where they are unchaperoned and yeah. kind of do whatever they want up till then it's really just kind of you know some variation of this of you find somebody right. who's in a similar social situation to you get to know each other in group settings or at least with a chaperone yeah you know meetings between the two of you and maybe a few other people you exchange some gifts you exchange some letters You make sure both families are on board. Bada bing, bada boom. It's all done. (laughs) And now it's time for us to talk about very, very sad things. Yeah. So if you're leaving us now, it's just click off. And then in a few days, you can go and listen to the bonus on Medieval Courtly Love, where I talk about all those troubadours and knights and fair maidens and towers. (laughs) And now I'm going to hand it over to Margot to talk about very, very sad things.
0: Yeah, so um, this is our moment where you can see that, like, we don't necessarily do our research together (laughs) because we're making a radical, aggressive tonal shift.
1: Yeah, I don't think we've ever done our research together. No, even
0: once. No. Um, So yeah, I uh, again, trigger warning: if you don't want to talk about or you don't want to hear about, um, essentially just sexual assault Uh, don't stay on for the rest of this time so uh, like Sonia said the the process of marriage stayed the same in at least like colonial communities until we have this shift the major shift in youth culture in the 20th century. Um, it would have been supervised and like watched over and you would have had to have consent from like families in order to like move forward. All of that stuff was also true in um, like colonial America. Obviously things were a little different in indigenous communities because there were, was a different kind of agency for women in a lot of indigenous communities and the, like, choices and the process of making a choice for marriage. But I'm going to talk about that probably more next week when we have, like, our marriage episode. Um, But for today, I'm talking about how we think about (laughs) how do i phrase this i'm i'm going to talk about like the reason that i'm putting this in this episode is sort of that it's you know often when these courtship situations go wrong or are absent right how that's how i got down this weird rabbit hole um But something sort of interesting is happening in this realm of historical study. Um, Until relatively recently, it seemed to be a sort of understanding in the historiography that either assault of this nature was very uncommon. Um, You know, it was something done by the depraved uh or was like exclusive not exclusively but was mostly um the realm of like war crimes that kind of thing uh which i'm sure comes up in the the chivalry the codes of chivalry right so clearly it was a problem but there's this idea that like people didn't talk about this kind of stuff in the past um or at least in like the early modern period um these colonial periods um and we think that there's like not a a record a historical record to look at but if you can expand the ideas of how you're going to look at like court cases and things um you can really find a really plentiful uh like archive of instances and like in-depth records of what people were thinking about how they were conceiving of these acts of aggression um And so like we see in the 1970s, when we get a lot of feminist scholarship, um, people started talking, especially, um, no, so yeah, um, a lot of mostly um, women historians and feminist scholars start talking about the the history of rape, essentially, is what we're talking about. Like, I'm going to use that word for the rest of it, especially because it's a a distinct legal term, especially at this time. There is a difference between an assault, which carries lesser charges, and even an assault of sexual nature and rape. Right. Um, that Those are distinct legal categories at this time. Um,
1: yeah, because there's a difference legally between, like, if...
0: Yeah, yeah the, they, an assault on someone's person yeah, versus... Um,
1: a sexual assault or a coerced sex
0: act like they had all of these various categories at the time Um, and not all of them were if you're just looking at like the larger court records of what people were charged with what they ended up going to prison for um it's often just written as like assault or assault on a person um and very rarely rape because rape is a capital crime um, so, like, you had to be willing to hang a person for this.
1: Yeah, it's also that, you know, unfortunately, as I mean, in a lot of cases, uh, and also um, because, you know, as we know today, there's still a lot of stigma around it, and in the yes. past even more so, so you didn't necessarily want it on the record that, yeah, you know, and uh, like, especially for an unmarried woman mm-hmm. to have it on the record that she'd been raped, because then there's a whole, like you know yeah tarnishing of her reputation
0: yeah which is bananas um yeah so it becomes like pretty clear as we move through the 1970s that um as people start combing through documents right at first glance it might seem like the documented numbers are really really low they're not regular occurrences and that's why a lot of especially male historians um would suggest that like this was not a regular occurrence but if you look at um so like not If you look at the depositions, if you look at the larger, like, court records of what was actually said in the trial, if you look at how they were covered in newspapers, et cetera, you might be able to identify such prosecutions as, like, sexually related assaults. Um, And part of the reason that I said earlier that this was, like, a distinctly colonial conversation is that when you look at those records the only discussions that you see are of white women if it's being recognized at all if it's being taken to the court at all it is because it had a a white woman was assaulted um african-american women native american women um and especially anyone who was enslaved uh would not be able to bring anyone to court. Um, There's literally not a single rape conviction against a white man um, for raping an enslaved woman uh, between the years 1700 and the Civil War, like, at all. And, you know, we can look at other records that we have, um, a lot of writing by abolitionists where they're like, there are so many white men that we know are, you know, neighbors, friends, whatever, who have children with their slaves. So we know for a fact that, like, this is happening, um, so many records of it, and not a single conviction or even, like, prosecution. So that is a, a whole thing, you know, when we think about... The ramifications of this history on our modern day society. This is where this is coming from. This hypersexualization of women of color, and it even—I mean—it gets more and more com- complicated um, because of when we want to talk about how how this these acts affected. Obviously, not just women, um, not just the individual woman, but a society at large, Oops, that sounds but a society at large, it, we have to look at how not just how they're talking about it when it happens in real life, when it is brought to the courts, when people are discussing an actual instance, but how it's being used for rhetorical effect And that is where we really realize just how common this must have been to be used in the way that it is. So we have this idea of people in the past being very prudish, of especially people in the early modern period being very prudish and not talking about sex at all, and especially not talking about coerced sex. But they did. There is not a type of, like, a genre of printed material where they did not have some discussion of sexual assault.
1: Yeah. Um, Just really, this does not like people don't start to become super prudish and censoring and being like, Oh, that's like secret. We can't talk about anything related to sex until the Victorians. Yeah. Prior to that, like it's because the Victorians were so prudish, at least, you know, in their, In in their, uh, like, public life, I Mm -hmm. guess. Like, I cannot speak on their private lives, but, (laughs) you know, whereas, yeah, uh, early modern world, medieval world, classical world, it's, yeah, sexual assault is being discussed openly, sex in general, there's, you know, just, it's a very, it's not treated as this, like, secret thing that no one must speak of. Yeah. So... It's in
0: everything, and it's used to specific uh, rhetorical effect for certain things. So, um, we have records, right, of, like, multiple founding fathers debating, like, the punishments for this crime, um, talking about, you know, like, meeting accused attackers or... Most often, for like the founding fathers in that period, um, they're talking using the uh, accounts of British soldiers attacking colonial women um, as a way to propagandize, essentially. Um, and you have that happening on both sides. So, royalists are saying, like, they're the colonial men are making this up to try and discredit our rightful rule of the colonies and the colonial men you know on the other side in the colonial newspapers they're saying look at all of these horrible things that are being done I you know they're just out here to attack our women and to take our land and like do all of this stuff um, they're using it in this very specific way of like they're going to disempower the men by attacking their women. And so it really doesn't have, it's like particularly disturbing the rhetoric because it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the actual women. We see it in other instances in the time as well, right? There's all of these, um, in, on the other side of the Atlantic in Europe, where we have like all of these conflicts between Catholics and Protestants, um, On either side, uh, it's Catholic men are going to come in and attack Protestants or Protestants attacking Catholics. It was mostly anti-Catholic rhetoric. Um, So an example is um, 1753's Popish Cruelty Displayed, um, which was about Irish attacks on Protestants, um, claiming that Protestant ministers were, quote, quote that protestant ministers were tied to trees and forced to watch the basest villains ravish their wives and daughters before their faces um which like was like it becomes such a clear like metaphorical discussion not about isn't it horrific that These violent acts are happening to women, but isn't it terrible? Like, you can see from who they're talking about there, right? Whose perspective they're asking the reader to be in. That of the men tied to trees, watching something being taken from them.
1: Well, yeah, because rape is a property crime, Mongo. You're taking a man's rightful property by sleeping with, I'm saying sleeping with, raping his wife. Because, you know, then if she has a kid, you don't know if it's yours or not. And it's even worse if you rape his daughters, because then how is he ever going to marry them off if they're not pure virgins? Yeah. Yeah, it's horrific to be, it's it's messed up.
0: And as we get further and further into, um, like, toward the 19th century, we see um, discussions in the Americas about the necessity to control enslaved populations, the necessity to prevent slave rebellions by saying that, oh, well, their mission in getting rid of the white men is to come and rape all the white women. Um, And so, like, you can, by... uh, by studying... This, like I want, to, I want to make sure that there that we understand that there's like a clear reason in having discussions like this. Because one of the things that we can do with this study of sexual assault is map very neatly the power dynamics of a society, especially in these metaphorical discussions. Who is being attacked? Who are they being attacked by? And who is being harmed by the attacking, right? That's going to show who is empowered and who is disempowered. Who is showing up in court records and who isn't? And how does that line up to, like, birth and death records? You know, that's how we can really see um, how how power is being distributed and how that power is then being used. Right. Um, and how that power rhetorically is being used, maybe even more importantly, and how that has affected the way that in our contemporary times, we conceive of crime and we conceive of certain people's powers to commit those crimes. Um, Yeah, and essentially just, like, how how colonialism and imperialism and capital can be, like, used violently against a person's body and against a person sexually. Um, Yeah, there's not, like, a super neat place to put in this discussion, which is why I was just, like... We're, we're putting it here.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the, the anti-courtship, if you will. Yeah. You know, like, I talked about basically the, the nice side of, you know, people looking for a life partner, mm-hmm. whereas you took on the side of, but what about when people are just out here raping people and using, you know enacting violence on women yeah for you know power yeah
0: for power like that's yeah. the only reason this yeah. is not like it's
1: n- yeah like to, to be clear i'm not like oh you're so overcome with feelings that you just <laughs> you just yeah can't control yourself no i mean in terms of like it, on one hand right like you're doing these courtship rituals In part because, yeah, you do want, like, an actual relationship with Mm -hmm. a person and have this, like, normal and and socially acceptable outlet for, like, sexual desires versus instead taking sex and turning it into a weapon, basically.
0: Yeah. A way to control populations that you are enslaving, a way to destroy a society as part of your larger genocide yeah it's a a bad time was had by all
1: anyway tune in next week when we talk about the wedding season (laughs) we're we're in wedding season right now wedding season legal
0: sex Yay. have sex legally and socially acceptable and a socially acceptably i guess
1: yes yes i don't know have sex in a socially acceptable way yeah there, there we, we go. go all right see you next time thank you for listening to the baba yaga project and as always thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!